now. There we go. Good deal. Good morning. Back off. Back on. Back off. There we go. Let me try that again. Good morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Join me there. Hasn't this been great this morning? Amen. Yeah, that's that's how I feel. I, wow. Greatly blessed. Uh, if there's like a Matt Papa section of worship in heaven, I want to stop by there a lot when we get there and praise the Lamb of God with our dear brother. What a joy it is. The book of Hebrews is coming to a close for us. Next week we enter into Shine. You'll hear more about that this coming week, but there's the great crescendo of what the writer has been after in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And so I want to walk with you up to that because he's done the five things that I've been telling you that nourish our faith, that leads to endurance. And so let's go back over those. You've got them right in front of you. He's basically saying, in light of, and you can go right there on your outline, letter A, the Christ-exalting doctrine that he has been giving us through the book. The book starts out in Hebrews chapter 1. His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world And He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name. The writer to the Hebrews has been lacing the book with Christ-exalting doctrine, saying that He is the image of God. He is God in the flesh, visible, tangible, touchable. And that He is greater than angels, and that He is greater than Moses, and He is greater than the priests, and He is greater than the priesthood, and He is greater than the high priest, and He is greater than all, and Lord of all, and He has sat down It is finished, job done, interceding for us at the right hand of God. But the writer to the Hebrews has gone further because he has been warning us. Letter B, fear-producing warnings of judgment. Five times in the book of Hebrews, the writer has said, Hey guys, gals, listen carefully. If you don't follow Jesus... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Over and over in those five warnings, he sternly says that there is an element of people that initially give all signs and symptoms of redemption and they start on this journey and then their faith is put to real tests and it's found to be false And they walk away. And He warns them with stern warnings. Danger to their souls. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore let us fear. 
while a promise remains of entering his rest, that any one of you should seem to have come short of it. He goes further, and we talked about in the last few weeks, let her see the anxiety-destroying assurances and encouragement that are woven through the whole book of Hebrews constantly while holding up the exaltation of Jesus and warning us of what it would be like if we do not trust Him by faith. He says to us, be assured, this Christ has done such a superlative work as to permanently, perfectly secure your relationship with God. So much so that chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, join me there, just to review. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in our time of need. These anxiety-destroying assurances and encouragements are made to encourage you to stay the course. Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. He is exalted. He is the nutrition for the journey. Letter D, we learned in past weeks in light of these soul-anchoring hope promises given by God. Come with me to chapter 6, verse 17. One of my favorite passages in the book. He says, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. Now listen carefully. You remember when we went through this, that means that God swore on your salvation. I want you to think about when God swears. When God swears by His name, He swore on your salvation to bring it to pass. He made promises that were based not upon anything less than His own name. What does He say there in verse 18? In order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He's saying in light of these promises of hope, in letter E, in light of the faith-inspiring examples focusing on obedience, when we get into chapter 11, we read through that in the last few weeks. In fact, Steve read the entire entirety of chapter 11 last week. I think it's one of the longest passages we've ever read together as a congregation. And we read all the way through to 11, I mean, to, to chapter 12, verse 1. We saw these examples. Look in verses 17 through 19. Here's just one of those examples, particularly by faith, Abraham, eleven seventeen. by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. 
It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. There's this glorious picture of this example of faith that God would intervene miraculously when we act in obedience to his word. Now, we learned in the last few weeks that those five areas of teaching that were constantly emphasized throughout the book were made, given, written, handed down so that our faith may be nourished for a purpose. The people in the book of Hebrews are suffering. We've talked about what their life is like. They've lost family, fortune, friends, standing. They've lost everything that this earth might have to offer. You read in chapter 10 where it talks about you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. Where the loss of the things of this world did not even rattle their faith. But they have been under this duress of persecution now. Not for minutes, not for days, not for months. But they've been under this for years and possibly into a couple of decades of it. And they are tired. And they're hurting. They're looking back over a life of loss. Relationships. Stuff. Possibly some of these are the ones who were driven out during one of the Roman persecutions. And they were actually driven from their towns and cast out into the countryside. Where they had to completely start over with absolutely nothing. So they're tired. Some obviously have left the faith. They've quit. They've turned away. They've said Jesus is not worth all this. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is wanting to do is this one thing in chapter 12. He's, he's nourishing their faith so that their faith will be the one thing that will bring about what chapter 10 says that they need. So let's jump there. Let's remember what we said three weeks ago, chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. He says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 35 and 1036 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And so these five things we've talked about are those five things that nourish a faith that produces endurance. And that's what he's after in chapter 12. So here's the primary thing that he's after. Let us run with endurance. Read with me there in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I don't want to get too far ahead in what I'm going to say about the race, but what's important for us to realize at this point is that race means the entire journey from the beginning of God's revelation to you about Christ that brought you to faith to trust, 
to obedience. To the end of that journey, which is some kind of finish line that you come to at the end of your life. And that that journey is the whole journey called the will of God. This is God's path, God's choice, God's instruction for what you're to do with your life. This is the road that you are to be on. And so he's saying, you have that before you. And so he's calling us, let us run with endurance. Why does he say that? Look in verse 3, and he's going to talk about it at the very end. Here's the danger. And then we're going to walk through how to run with endurance. Look in verse 3, I should say. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not do what? Grow weary and lose heart. These are two separate things, but they come together. To grow weary is the fading, the tiring. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Lynn and I taking that bicycle ride together where he ran out of sugar, his body ran out of sugar and he bonked. And because of a lack of nutrition, he couldn't go on. He had to stop and he had to be rescued. And there was that sense in which he grew weary and even more than that, there's the losing heart. There's that moment of of giving up. That's what the writer doesn't want to happen to you. Because that's a danger. When you follow Jesus, when you embrace Him with all you are and all you have, and you begin this journey, the the prosperity gospel is such a lie. It promises an earthly fulfillment. But as we read in the Scriptures of the saints of old, from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the review in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, there's often times where this world will give us absolutely no comfort, no acceptance, and it may even take our lives. And that our only comfort will be found in a relationship with God through Jesus and the hope of what He has promised us as a result of that. And so there's this danger, a real danger. The people who start and appear to start well may at some point along the way say, it's not worth it. I'm out of here. I'm done. Jesus is not worth it. Heaven's not worth it. God's not worth it. This work is not worth it. And they, and they leave. He said, that's, that's a danger. And so he's wanting to nourish us with these truths so that our faith grows and is the nutrition for our journey. And so he says, here's how to run the race. He breaks it into four parts. They're very simple. Number one, how to run with endurance, a backward look. He calls on us to look back at people who've lived before us. 
Verse 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those witnesses? Well, primarily he's speaking about those giving testimony to Hebrews 11. They had been approved by God because of their faith in him. And they had been accepted by him. And they had been blessed by him with an eternal destiny. Better than anything that this earth could offer. Is they were to take a backward look and they were to look back and say, what did... What did the Bible say about those people back there? And so he reviews that. We can break that into three parts. First, a backward look to two groups. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't just leave us positive examples. Little Roman numeral number one under letter A. The faithless of Hebrews chapters 3 and chapter 4. One of the warnings that comes to us is the story of the Exodus. And this great number of people that God brought out of the bondage of slavery. This great number of people that He provided for, that He fed, that He gave manna and water, that He took care of every one of their needs. He he, uh, dwelt above them as a pillar of cloud by day, protecting them as a pillar of fire by night, protecting them. All of these things He gave them and He took care of them and He met every need for them. And they came out. And what happens in Hebrews 3 and 4 is the story that they didn't trust Him and so they died in the wilderness because of a lack of faith that fostered disobedience. That's best covered in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Look there. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we've had the good news preached to us, just as they did also. So this is a backward look. He's saying, look back at these people. These people heard the good news. God was preaching to them the good news of His deliverance and what the Messiah would eventually bring about. He's preaching that to them through the Exodus, through the Passover, through all of the parts of the temple and the ceremony and the sacrifice, even the the serpents in the wilderness. He's preaching the gospel to them. But notice what it says in verse 2. For indeed we've had the good news preached to them, excuse me, us, just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And we hear the sad news in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. This faithless group of Hebrews was given to us to look back at and say, be warned. Be warned. You can have the full display of the miraculous abilities of God laid all in front of you and you could still not trust Him. You could have the full experience of what the Exodus was like and the Red Sea parting. What a massive occasion that would have been. You could have the full experience of the mountain rumbling and trembling and Moses' face glowing. And still not believe. And so he's warning them. He says, if you want to run this race with endurance, take a backward look and first see the faithless people who had all of the revelations that God gave them and still did not believe and obey. 
little Roman numeral number two, the faithful of Hebrews 11. He says, look back at them. He gives that list that we are familiar with and we've read over the last few weeks. We've heard about Abel and we've heard about Noah. We've heard about Enoch and we've heard about Abraham and we've heard about Sarah. We've heard about Isaac and we've heard about Jacob. We've heard the story of Moses and we've heard about all of these others that came after them. That The writer said, I don't even have time to tell you about them. They're positive examples of Genuine faith, real faith, abiding faith, not superhero faith, but saving faith. So letter B, a backwards look to God's testimony concerning these two groups. Now, this is important. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, hey, it's not important what we say about the two groups. Listen carefully. God is not gauging anything in our eternity on our opinion. He's not up there going, well, if you can win the opinion of these people or be liked by these people or be accepted by these people, things that seem really important to us here and now. God's saying, no, 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 no. Don't worry about their opinion. You need to worry about God's opinion. What was God's opinion? What was his opinion about the faithless? Well, it says in chapter 3, verse 11, listen to God's oath in chapter 3, verse 11 about the faithless. What is his oath? Verse 11, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This was God's announcement that they had not maintained a faith relationship with Him by obedient trust, and He was rejecting them, and they fell in the wilderness as a picture for us in this day. What was His testimony concerning the other group? Look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says it very clearly. Here's God's testimony about one man. It summarizes how Hebrews 11 is laid out. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying. Who gave a testimony of the righteousness of Abel? God did. So what matters to you is God's testimony about you. God's testimony about you. Whether or not He accepts and approves you through this one thing. Faith in Jesus Christ. This is how we gain our approval with God. is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so finally, let us see a backwards look at the testimony of the approved. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, what are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to the faithfulness of God. He's saying, look back on what they thought about God. Now, there's one particular passage that's worthy of us looking in verse 24 of chapter 11. Let's go there. And let's just hear the testimony of one man about what he thought about God. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was Moses saying? Moses was saying, God is worth more than the treasures of the greatest empire of my time. And he walked away from it. And he gave testimony to the worth 
of God by his life. So backward look. Next look. Hebrews chapter 12 says, if you're going to run the race, you need to not only take a backward look at these two groups and what God said about them and what the right group said about God, you need to take a selfward look. My brothers and sisters, I'm just going to tell you before I jump into this, this one's tough. It hurt me working through it, and I think it's going to cause us to labor a little bit because of the language of the text. He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. A selfward look means to begin looking at two things. Letter A, lay aside unnecessary weight. The word that is used here, encumbrance, is an unpleasant word. It's the word which means to be swollen or to be fat. And he's kind of making a little bit of a joke about what kind of guy, what kind of gal do you see who is a distance runner? I want to tell you that if you lined up the distance runners and the sumo wrestlers, could you tell a difference? Yes or no? Yeah. You can tell a difference between a sumo wrestler and a distance runner. Why? They're built differently. He's saying, and the word that is used here for encumbrance was actually a word that that was described a woman who had conceived and who was beginning to show her conception by her pregnancy. So her her belly was actually swelling. It's actually used in some of the extra-biblical literature to describe Mary when it became obvious that Mary was expecting and nobody could hide it anymore. Everybody noticed she was swollen and everybody said, well, she's expecting. And so it has to do with a swelling and it's typically used with obesity. And he's saying it. There are things that are part of us that are a kind of spiritual obesity that is preventing us from running. It's got us sidelined because we can't. And he's saying. There has to be a sense in which things that are a part of you that keep you from running, you need to get rid of them. Now, I don't know about you, but as I cross the line from 30 into 40 and now past 50, I'll be 51 this week, I notice that it's harder and harder to shed those pounds. Let me correlate that with your spiritual age. The longer that you go and you don't shed those things that you need to get rid of, the harder it is to get rid of them. There are things that are attached to you that are a part of you that are keeping you from swiftly running this race. There are things that are attached to me that are spiritual obesities. And they're keeping me looking more like a spiritual sumo wrestler in God's eyes than a spiritual distance runner who wants to finish the course. And so he addresses and he says, there are things in you that are a part of you that need to go. 
And they're hard to get rid of. And the longer they've been a part of you, the harder they are to rid of. But he says, lay them aside. And then he goes on and says, and the sin which so easily entangles us, let her be, lay aside unnecessary baggage, luggage, cargo. There are things not only a part of us that we need to get rid of if we want to run swiftly and enduringly. There are things around us we need to get rid of. These are things that the way the language is given, it's kind of like um, somebody trying to run in a cloak or a robe or a skirt that's too tight. It's too clingy around here. And the best they can do is this. Do you all remember um, the Adams family? Y'all remember the Adams family, Morticia, and she wore that little dress, went all the way down to her feet. It was about this big, and so everywhere Morticia walked, she walked like this. She wasn't running anywhere. Now, there are some of us that are here today, and we got stuff all wrapped up around the legs of our lives, and we're not running. We think we're swiftly in the way, and we're like Morticia. We're just moving right along, kind of like Tim Conway and his little Carol Burnett. It's very important for us to realize this is not good. This is not healthy. But there are things a part of us and things surrounding us. They need to go. John Owen said, we cannot take up our cross to follow Christ unless we first deny ourselves. This laying aside includes a willingness, a readiness, a resolution to part with any and every weight cheerfully. Think about that. I, I don't lose weight cheerfully. Do you? But there has to be a sense that you and I so want to meet our maker in joyful accomplishment of the task He gave us, that we will swiftly and eagerly, cheerfully, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, Owen says, if called thereunto, also a daily mortification of our hearts and affections unto all things which would act as a weight or hindrance. Things in us and things around us, my brothers and sisters, need to change. Third, not just a look back, not just a selfward look, but also an upward look. This was where the writer to the Hebrews was wanting to bring our attention. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look there. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. So there are two things we do when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Letter A, fixing our eyes on Jesus, number one, we need to focus on who He is. One of the things that will nourish our faith is to constantly speak to ourselves the Word of God by reading, meditating, memorizing, and by listening about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is something that must come in. Who He is. He is the author and the perfecter. Author means originator, fountain, source, beginning, 
champion, accomplisher. There's so many words there, but he is the guy who gets it done. Perfecter means that everything necessary for this thing called faith to save your soul, he has taken care of. He's perfected it. Listen to those words that we get from chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What is that? He is the one who has finished the task. And so we fix our eyes on who he is. And we also fix our eyes, number two, on what he has done. He endured the cross. Read there in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, chapter 12, verse 2. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him, what did He do? He endured the cross, despising His shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Remember that we said that the worker doesn't sit down till the work is finished. Jesus finished the work and sat down at the Father's right hand. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus, who He is And what he has done. And that, letter B, he says, consider him. Verse 3. Consider him. The word consider had to do with a jeweler who was going to take a precious stone and through magnification and bright light discern its value. He was going to carefully analyze. He was going to make sure whether or not to put an investment in this stone. So here's this jeweler, and he's trying to decide, am I going to put all this much into this? Somebody's asking this much for it. Am I going to put that much into it? And so he begins carefully considering whether or not it is worth its stated value. The Bible tells us the stated value of Jesus, this immeasurable love, this un calculable, incalculable glory. And we are to consider Him. Because if we don't consider Him rightly, there will be a place in the race that we won't think He's worth it. And we'll stop. And so, consider Him. You'll notice I put under that, this is the nourishment for the race. It is. The nourishment for the soul of the runner is the person of Christ. Who He is, what He's done, where He's taking us constantly, being in front of us. And so we take a backward look. We take a selfward look. We take an upward look. And then we make a forward look. Listen to how He puts it. So number four, a forward look. We need to look at two things. First, letter A, we need to look at the race that is set before us. Look there in verse 1 as it closes. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race. You know what the word for race is here? It's A-G-O-N-A. It's the word from which you and I derive in English agony. It's the word that describes the moment that Jesus is sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane. The writer does not put out some little nice prosperity gospel, happy-go-lucky Christian offer. 
He says this race is the race that they called the agony race. It was the marathon. It was the hard one. It wasn't the sprint. It was the marathon. And so he uses the word here to say to the hearers, if you're in, you're in for the long haul. If you're in, you're in all the way to the end. If you're in, you're in for the journey, the full journey. And so he doesn't make any kind of apology. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is one of the reasons the prosperity gospel is such an affront to the real gospel and such a deceptive enticement. The prosperity gospel speaks little of the true cost of discipleship and much of the present world benefits. When the disciples were known for having left everything, Jesus spoke to us in Luke chapter 14 of the cost of discipleship. He said, what man is going to build a tower and doesn't consider the cost? What man is going to fight a battle and doesn't consider the cost? What man comes to follow me and doesn't consider the cost. Jesus is calling us to a forward look at a race that is very serious, very rigorous, and sometimes incredibly painful. Sometimes it's disappointing, disheartening. Sometimes the, the, the stress of it pulls at the fiber of your soul and you ache for your brothers and sisters who hurt. You ache for the relationships you want to see mended. You know you hurt. But this is a lifelong faith, a lifelong following, a lifelong enduring. But He doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't say, oh, it's, it's, this, it's this agona. This long, hard thing. And he doesn't just leave it there. He says, wait. And he uses exactly the same word. When he says, the race set before us, he turns and he says, look in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Now, he parallels those intentionally. Because something is happening at the cross And something is happening in this race that parallel each other. Something is going toward a destination. Something is moving toward glory. Join me in the book of Revelation because that's what's happening here. Jesus is bringing about something for us that as we walk on this journey toward Him, that as we labor in this thing called a race, that as we look backward at those who give testimony to God and His greatness, backward to those whose faith got them the approval of God, as we look selfward and say, I need to shed this weight, I need to shed these things, as we look upward and we see Jesus, who He is, what He's done for us, we look forward, we know the race is hard, but we know there's something there. He says, for the joy of Set before Him. Come with me to Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, we come down to chapter 4 verse 5. We see this vision 
that John is given. And it's a vision of the throne of God. And listen to this. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass and crystal in the center and around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second like a calf, and the third had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, and who is, and who is to come. The living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne. To Him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art Thou, Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou didst create all things and because of Thy will they existed and were created And then you have that scene of a book that can't be opened and the weeping and someone saying in chapter 5, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of him incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they sang with one loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and under the sea, and all the things in them, I heard them all saying, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion, forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The joy... The joy that was set before Him is our joy. It is the joy of our redemption. Why is it worth it to go down the road of agony? Why is it worth it to run with endurance? Because at the finish line, there is a Lamb that we will worship. And He purchased us with His own blood. And everything in that moment that seemed so hard on your journey. 
will seem so small compared to His glory. I want you to bow with me. And I just want to ask you three questions. The first is, am I in the race? Some of you are not headed heavenward right now. Whether by pretense you've been playing as if you were a Christian. Or by accident you didn't understand and you thought you were a Christian. Or by not knowing. And today you've heard about what Jesus has done. He has died on the cross for your sins. He's been raised from the dead. So you need to enter this race. Because only those that are on this race, this course, they're the only ones going to heaven. The course is following Jesus. And oh, how you need Jesus. It's interesting, he didn't say that anything would qualify you for this race other than faith. So so it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, what your list is, what your wrongs are, what the details are. You see, that part's not what qualifies you. What qualifies you is that you see Jesus for who He is, and you say, yes, living Son of God, dying Son of God, resurrected Son of God, reigning Son of God, King of kings, yes, I trust you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You were raised from the dead. And I embrace you. I enter the race today. Would you do that this minute? Right now? Not waiting for something else to happen, but in your heart, praying to Him and saying, yes, right now. Now, some of you, you're believers. You're like me. After hearing this passage, you began considering some things that are a part of you, some spiritual obesity, some fatness that doesn't belong, that's hindering the run. You know it. The Spirit began speaking it to you. God began convicting you, and you know there were some things you need to deal with that are a part of you. It's time to get them off. There's even some things around you that are clinging to you, tripping you up, and you know they didn't go so what are they? Maybe in your heart right now you would list some of them. And they need to go. The third question I want to ask you is what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do today to be serious about running the race? See, sometimes we ask a question and it's the wrong way to ask it. We say, is this sinful? And then we get into these gray areas and we start rationalizing and we wrestle through things and we say, well, it doesn't seem like we're not under the law anymore. And so I kind of think maybe it's not so sinful. And we start rationalizing. Here's the question that we need to ask along with that. We need to ask, does this help me run? Does this make me swift in the journey? Does this make me light of the things of this world and free to go exactly where God That's the question we asked this morning. Am I in the race? I need to shed some spiritual pounds and get rid of some spiritual baggage. 
what am I going to do about it? I plead with you.